Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. All right, well, good morning. Uh, we're going to be talking, I'm going to talk in just a minute about the events that we saw unfold this week. I think I need to address it, but um, there's something I actually want to celebrate with you first that I think connects beautifully to our message overall today. Y'all, our church is really big on generosity here. We believe God was generous to us in Christ. He continues to be generous to us. And so we look for ways to be generous together. His generosity fuels our generosity. And one of our favorite ways is our Christmas missions offerings. This offering we talked about over throughout the month of December that we took up together, 100% of it goes outside the walls of mercy to support church planting around the world, to support local outreach here in our community. And I told you, we weren't even setting a goal because I just wanted us together to give out of the joy we have in Christ. And not only that, you know, I know that the financial impact of COVID is hitting hard in different ways. I just didn't think we need the burden of a goal. We wanted a gospel-motivated Christmas missions offering. Um, y'all, our record before this was right at $70,000 uh, for a Christmas missions offering we've taken up before. Um, honestly, I didn't really know what to expect uh, this year with this whole year and everything, but Mercy Church, listen, um, everything's in and tallied, and you gave $89,343.22. So most ever. Uh, so cool. Your generosity It is so contagious. I love your heart for seeing more people come to know Christ. Um, This is going to mean that we're going to be able to give uh, to these local ministries that our members are already active in, like Congregations for Kids, Project 658, the Charlotte Dream Center. In fact, I got a note from the head of the Dream Center just the other day thanking me, but really thanking all of us for how Mercy invests not just money, but people into ministry, into our community. I love that about you guys. Um, We're going to be able to give to Proclamation Church, the church that we helped to plant um, over in Tennessee, where we sent people and now are able to send resources into some other um, churches. And then internationally, we're going to be able to help out um, over in Kenya again with Catherine Mitchell and with church planters in Greece and several other areas, some of which I can't even say, you know, fully out loud. We can talk about Cuba, South Asia, but there's just some, some awesome spots we're able to serve because of your generosity. Um, listen, it's, just, it's a joy. It is a joy to pastor and to lead this kind of a church. Um, now, listen, I'll say if you didn't give or maybe you've never given, you still can. Uh, you can't give to that offering, of course, but you can give to the ministry here. We got big ministry hopes. That's what we're talking about in this whole series because of Christ. Um, and we're following God into those. And I believe generosity fuels that mission. So yes, come on, get in on it. But before you do, I want you to get to know us a little bit. Uh, I'd love to, to get to know you. I'd love for you to get to know us. Uh, we're going to do a starting point, something we call starting point, a little orientation I'm going to lead right after this service, right here 
online right after the service that I encourage you to stick around for and get to know us a little bit more to know what you'd be giving to and not just giving your finances to, but we want you to get involved into the life of the body of Christ, all right? That's a little bit about that. Um, Now, if you got your Bible, make your way over to the New Testament book of Hebrews chapter 12. We are in a sermon series. This is week two of a series that we're calling Because of Christ. I told you this is a defining, last week I said this is a defining series for us. I've never really done a sermon series like this before where we take six sermons, open up scripture to talk about who God is calling Mercy Church to be as a church. What, in effect, what makes us, us? That's big. It's kind of like putting all our cards out there and saying, hey, look, we're going to look back in five years at this series and measure success as a church by what we set out in January of 2021. Now, I had no idea how timely it would be for us as a local body of Christians in the historic moment that we now find ourselves in. Most of you by now have seen the video of the violent storming of our nation's capital this week. Now, listen, if you know anything about me, you know that I believe the pulpit is not a political platform. So I'm not going to be engaging in a whole lot of political analysis. You have not found another talking head on a cable news station, all right? It's not what this is. But... Uh, y'all say, like, like many of you, I bet, I know I was feeling, I just couldn't believe it. I could not believe what I was seeing. Now, I found myself over and over, what, is this happening? Now, look, even if you were, uh, if you've been saying things like, something like this is going to happen, you probably weren't expecting that, and I know you're not happy, right? I know five people died, as, from what I know, and as an American, I was, I was mad, I was embarrassed for what the moment meant for our country. I just, I don't know, there's a whole lot of emotions. Maybe you haven't, I ain't fully figured out yet how I'm feeling. But what I'll tell you what, I was deeply grieved to see Jesus's name being attached to that violence. The actions we saw were not, hear me, in case you are somehow, you're tuning into this because a friend sent you this message, I need to say it as clear as possible. The actions we saw were not representative of Jesus or the gospel his church has the honor of proclaiming. Y'all, the Jesus of scripture is a king, but John 18, 36, his kingdom is not of this world. He's the God of justice, and yet he told Peter, in this world, those who wield the sword will perish by it. That's Matthew 26. He calls us to pray for our leaders, to honor and submit to them, not to threaten and overrun them. 1 Timothy 2.2, 2, Romans 13.1, 1 Peter 2.17, he's the king of peace and mercy. He is the son of God who commands angel armies, but the only gates he storms are the gates of hell itself. And one day he himself is going to come back riding on a white horse and a trumpet will sound. And on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And until then, we preach a kingdom not of this world. I will tell you guys, I did a whole seminar. If you want kind of more on how do we relate to the political realm as believers and as a church, I did a whole seminar on God and politics in October. You can find on our website if you want more on that topic. But let me give you the connection for today, and I'm going to circle back into this even a little bit more in the sermon. In God's timing, we're talking about who we are as a church. Months ago, uh, we set out the order of this, this sermon series, and today we're rolling out the first of five values that will guide us. And well, I'm, just, I'm thankful that this one's here today because I was going to have to preach on this one anyways if it wasn't the sermon that we were already doing. 
Here's the value that I'm going to show you today through Scripture that's going to really guide mercy into who we are into the future. We keep the gospel at the center of all we do. It's about working from our salvation, not for it. And this matters because everything, listen, everything that we feel and that we do flows out of what we believe. Our feelings and our actions, they're always belief motivated. Last week, I shared our vision for the next five years, inspired by the first two verses of Hebrews 12. I'm not going to re-preach that whole thing, but if you remember verse 2 of Hebrews 12, you can look at it right there as well. Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, we fix our eyes on Jesus, what we're called to do as individuals and as a church, look to Jesus, run the race set before us because of who he is and what he's done for us. So our theme, both as individual Christians, I told you every single sermon, we're going to talk very um, personally about conviction in your own life and then together collectively us as a church. But our theme in both of that individually and corporately is because of Christ. That's our sermon series because that's our testimony. He's our source of faith. He's the one changing us for the better. Remember, I told you, you're not who you once were. If you're in Christ, you're not who you once were. You're also not who you will be one day because he's still got a work doing where he's changing you into his image. And we as a church are going to be a more God-glorifying church in a few years than we are today because of Christ at work in us. So we said our vision as a church is that because of Christ, Mercy Church will devote itself to becoming a maturing, multiplying, multicultural church over the next five years. That's our next five years right there. And over this series, I'm sharing the values, the operating principles that will guide us as we work towards that vision. I'll also be sharing some really tangible steps that we're going to take, shared many last week. So I will say, listen, if you're new to Christianity, again, however you got here to this message, this is, this is a great series because you're hearing the heartbeat of our faith. Like because of Christ, that's the core pillar of the Christian faith. And we're just kind of teasing that out for a few weeks, which is great for you to understand the the core of the Christian faith. Uh, It's great if you're new to this particular church because you're hearing what we're all about, um, the beliefs that motivate our actions. Now, to get into this first and most critical value, I want us to again look at verse 2, and we're going to add in verses 3 and 4 this week. All right, verse 2 of Hebrews 12, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source, actually, we'll give you the pioneer right? And perfecter of our faith. I told you that source, pioneers, a bunch of different words, authors, another word that's used in there, and perfecter of our faith for the joy that lay before him, for the joy. Remember, you and I are the joy that he saw as he went and endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Y'all are going to think today that I am a broken record because how important I believe that this is. The opening of verse 2, keeping our eyes on Jesus. Keeping our eyes on Jesus. This is one of those where every single word matters. Actually, I think that's true of all the Bible, but but really, I just lock in right here. You and I, listen, when he's talking, you and I are always looking at something. And what we fix our eyes on, obviously when he's talking about this, this represents what we give attention to, what we fixate on, because what we look at becomes what we love, what we cherish, what we treasure. So let me give you a question to consider as we go through today. What are you looking at? What are you looking at? 
What are the eyes of your heart looking at? Um, I've mentioned uh, a couple of times that over the course of the pandemic, the Shelton's got a new puppy. Um, sometimes I think that, man, that little, that little dog can't pay attention to anything, right? It's just crazy amount of energy, running around all the time, bouncing from one thing to the next. I'm like, thing's never going to, there's no chance of training it because it's never going to pay attention. That's true up until the moment where Courtney, my wife, cooks bacon. And then all of a sudden, this thing that can't possibly pay attention, kaboom, freezes and locks in. And it doesn't matter. Her name's Molly. We can yell, Molly! Me and all the kids can run around with all of our favorite toys, run around with a ball. We can set the whole house on fire. She is not going to move. She's going to stare at bacon because she loves bacon. So she fixes her eyes on bacon, right? What is the thing that commands your attention like that? What do you think about like while you're at work or while you're doing something else? You know, where does your mind go when you have idle time? What's your bacon? Now, some of you are like, bacon is my bacon, right? Yeah, yeah, maybe you can't help but visualize food that will ease your pain at the end of a tough day. Maybe it's looking at things other people have. Maybe that's what you're looking at, what the eyes of your heart long for. The average American spends two and a half hours a day on social media. We gorge ourselves on envy. Maybe that's where you are. Are you fixing the eyes of your heart on a relationship? Checking your phone constantly. Why hasn't he texted back? What's coming after those three gray dots? Why did they appear and then nothing happened? He didn't say anything. Does he hate me? That's the eyes of your heart seeing a boy instead of Jesus as the one worthy of your love. Or a girl instead of Jesus as the one worthy of your love. Maybe it's a political agenda you're fixated on to have the eyes of your heart? How often do you find yourself thinking, if that person gets elected, it's the end? Do you find yourself more motivated to defend your political position than celebrating your eternal position? Maybe it's your finances. Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's your, maybe your, your eyes of your heart are just fixated on your family schedule, and I got to make sure my family does everything. And all of a sudden, you've totally forgotten about the the king of the universe and the one who holds eternity in his hands. Bottom line is the language of this call from God is to keep actively, it's very active, keeping our eyes on Jesus. <laughs> I thought about titling this sermon Bacon Vision, but I thought, man, in the long run, that's not going to help. But, you know, I think about that dog. It's not like that dog is fighting competing temptations. Nothing else is even registering, right? It's just bacon. We need Jesus' vision, the way that dog is looking at bacon. We need it individually because I'm telling you, what I'm going to tell you throughout the sermon is nothing else will satisfy you. Yeah. Nothing else will satisfy you. I want to talk about why that would be so good for us and how we get there. That's where we bring in verses 3 and 4. Look at verse 3. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you won't grow weary. And give up. Now, the author's given us a little bit about what it means to fix our eyes on Jesus. It's not just that we think about a picture of Jesus, like a short Middle Eastern guy with what I'm guessing was a great beard, 
right? No, Jesus' vision is to keep our eyes on what he did and the reality that he did it for us, which is amazing. He endured hostility from sinners, such hostility, sinners not only ridiculed him, mocked him, beat him, arrested him, they murdered him. And the reason he allowed all of this to happen, so that you and I won't grow weary and give up in our struggle against sin, because we actually have victory over that sin. That's the gospel. Take a second and consider that glorious, mysterious love. If you're new to church, this gospel message, he endured hostility against sinners that he didn't deserve because there was no sin in him. And in fact, the sinners, we are ones that can associate with them because we, I think it's pretty easy to admit that we are all sinners. You're a sinner, I'm a sinner. That's a part of the gospel that probably makes the most sense because we mess up, we fall short, right? But what the amazing news of the gospel is, is that Christ took the payment, the justice owed to us for our sin, and he took it on himself so that we could be free from that penalty, and we could actually have new life. We're new creations here on earth. We're set free from the penalty of sin and death, and we can have eternity reconciled with God the Father in heaven forevermore. Man, when it says consider him, don't let the brevity of that statement lose its impact on you. Settle in there. Fix your eyes, the eyes of the heart. Lift them up off of all that stuff that you've been looking at and fix them on him and consider him. Do you get how much God loves you? He allowed himself to be murdered because in doing so, that was how he could not only give us victory over sin, but actually supply the strength for us to fight it in the here and now until we see him face to face. Look at verse four. In struggling against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now, I want to say something for a second. (laughs) There's a whole other sermon about the internal struggle against sin. But from this passage, the struggle he's talking about is against external forces that want to attack Christians for their belief. This is why he says you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. In other words, Jesus died at the hand of sinners, and he died so that you would have strength for the battle against the external forces of the world, against sin. And he's saying you haven't yet shed blood at the hand of sinners because of your belief in the gospel. Now, plenty who have read this would one day then follow their Savior down that road into death because of the gospel. That's clear from Hebrews chapter 11. But he's saying, reader, you haven't gone there yet. And those that did, when they did go there, they found strength not to give up. And they found that strength from their Savior, from this teaching. So listen up. For us, for us here and now, struggle's a little different, isn't it? Not everywhere in the world, but here and now, especially in the States, that struggle's a lot more indirect than direct. Most of us are not being physically attacked. Most of us are not being physically attacked for believing the gospel but we are being increasingly marginalized in our broader society. We're not the majority. Choosing to believe what Jesus says about marriage and family, about gender, about race, about justice, in an increasingly uncivil world, 
believing these will continue to create distance between you and the average non-Christian. And that's a struggle, especially because Jesus says, I don't want you to leave the world. I don't want you to just run away. He sent you and I, the church, into the world. But man, when we try to live the Christian life in a non-Christian world, it's a struggle. I just want you to know God knows you struggle with living out your faith in this world. If you weren't made for this world but for eternity, you shouldn't feel fully at home here, which means you'll struggle. That's why the language of Scripture is what it is. He gives you armor in Ephesians 6. He gives you armor because there's a battle, right? That's why he talks about the struggle as spiritual war. There's a struggle we go through to be the faithful people of God. Listen, I'm going to talk for a second about something that I believe we need to learn a lot more about. I need to learn a lot more about. But it's this, this struggle for the American church um, right now, the church in the West. Like, so a church in a local church in America, I see this struggle against the external forces of sin in the world. I see it fought on many, many fronts. Three that I can see that are common to our cultural moment. Plenty more I know that I need to see better. But this is what we just as Christians in a non-Christian world need to put on our missionary hats. And we need to see the world again afresh. And these are three fronts that I think are battlefronts for us right now. Um, They've been heightened the past few months, but they've always been there. Give me a few minutes on this. I think it's a very important explanation. One battlefront that I see the church losing ground on is compromising with what we'll call the progressive agenda. Honestly, the world can scream so loud that we start thinking, well, maybe if I just concede this battle, we will be able to make Jesus more acceptable to our present day and age. After all, there's some things that, that, that we really like there in that space, right? I love the care for the poor. There seems to be a message of equality for all, but then we make the mistake of thinking that's our home. After all, the other agenda couldn't be my home, so I guess this is it. So easy example, we, we bend on things like the Christian sexual ethic because it doesn't match the ethic of the day. Of course, y'all, this is absurd even from a logic standpoint because culture will always change its values. And the church cannot chase culture. Secondly, it's the gospel's very distinctiveness from culture that causes people to take notice of it, right? Something is different about them, and maybe they have something I need. If we look just like the world, why would the world think that we have something to need? In fact, right now, as it relates to that particular battlefront, I don't know that that the world is asking us a lot of questions. And I think for us, maybe instead of answering, Tim Keller says this, in his book about reaching the West again, said instead of answering their questions, we actually need to take that missionary approach and help the world question the answers they're already operating by and help them to see how deficient those things are when compared against the beauty and glory of Christ and to show off once again that Christ really is better. He really is better. But if the church doesn't keep its eyes on Jesus There's no hope there. We'll we'll drift eventually further and further. Some part of the church will drift 
further and further down that road and you run that direction for long enough, you end up praying something ridiculous like amen and a women, right? Or whatever thing that'll be. That's one battlefront. But there's another one. There's a couple more I think are all equally as dangerous. Another battlefront is that we are in danger of compromising with the conservative agenda. Because the progressive agenda is so loud and constant, we can look at the conservative agenda as a refuge. We see some things that resonate with us, protection of the unborn, religious liberty, but we make the mistake of thinking that's our home. So we move in, and before you know it, we're saying what they say. You can't be a Christian and vote for, which is a rather egregious judgment call. And then it's just one step under the banner of political expediency that we silently endorse character in a leader that we would eviscerate if from someone who didn't serve our agenda. Listen to me, when you're only prophetic against one side, that's not prophetic, that's partisan. And we cannot endorse any political ideology to take up the banner of Jesus because it will always use Jesus for its own good. The atrocities that have happened in the name of Jesus. Y'all know this. Just a brief look at world history. They go back very far. Nationalism is the enemy of the hour, though. And the evangelical church is the Trojan horse that it rode in on. And so for us, as missionaries in our current, current context, in our world, there's a lot of thinking and evaluating that we have to do is why is Jesus' name attached to a flag running up the Capitol? And how can we, just in our local church setting, be able to clearly articulate that's not Christ? But most importantly, we don't compromise with either the progressive or conservative agenda because God, not culture, is God. And there is no expiration date on his truth. Jesus is neither a modern-day progressive nor conservative, nor was he a member of the Whig Party, the Federalist Party, the Green Party, the Tea Party, nor is he a member of any other movement in any other political landscape in the world. He is the king who reigns over it all. His truth is always what is best for all people groups of all time. And he will never bless, ever bless any attempt to leverage his name for political gain. He is about his name and his glory alone. Listen, there is another battlefront, though, one that's a little more subtle and probably the one that's most dangerous to me and I think a lot of Christians. We look at those two things, and the third battlefront is we just withdraw from the world. I see this in a lot of Christians. This is in this whole struggle. I tend to go this way. I refuse to compromise, so I'm like, you know what? Who needs them? Let's just do our own thing. After all, Jesus is better. I'll just build little walls that keep the non-Christians and their nasty ways out. But that doesn't work. Now, first off, unless you are willing to, like, go be a monk, right, or, or go be Amish or something like that, you can't wall yourself off from culture. But secondly, and more importantly, Jesus was always in the world. He was with sinners because he loved sinners. And then he prayed to God. And John 17, as he's leaving, God, keep them, the church, those believers, you and me, in the world. Don't take them out of the world. Why? Because he loved them. He loved the world. He died for the world. 
And in our fear of the world, we would withdraw. And just her overwhelmness by everything, we would withdraw. But the problem is, listen, the further you get from something or someone, the harder it is to love it. Right? Jesus wants us in proximity with people that he loves so that we can have empathy for those people, so that we will begin to love what he loves. So what struggle then, if, if the struggle, if we've got these battlefronts, who are we supposed to be as a church? <laughs> who are we supposed to be as Christians? It's to be a faithful presence of God and his love here in the world, to love people like he loved them, to contextualize the gospel without compromising it. And honestly, that's the ongoing struggle of the church. It's an ongoing struggle for every Christian. That's why it's a struggle for the church, because each one of us individually struggles with it. I want to withdraw sometimes. I want to not fight the battle other times. You know, in our short five years as your pastor, I've been accused of leading our church into all of those camps, (laughs) of ignoring the world and sometimes of compromising on one side or the other. In fact, I've been accused of both camps, progressive and conservative agenda and leading our church there just the past week. By the way, that helps. I won't say this flippantly because it's frustrating, but it does help me to know that I'm right where I probably should be. So I uh, appreciate your emails. Um, but my, um, my life verse is Joshua 1.9. It's not like my, my life verse, you know, is be strong and courageous for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. He's talking to Joshua as Joshua's about to lead his people. But Joshua 1.7 says, don't go to the right or to the left. But instead, stay on the path and walk, walk towards me. Doesn't say shrink back. He says, Joshua, you got to go. Don't go this way or that way. I think it's incredibly, like, I don't know, easy to read into today's situation and help me. How do we remain a faithful presence in the world? How does each of us find strength to follow Jesus into this battle against sin? You remember that bacon? It's Jesus' vision. You fix your eyes on Jesus. This is why our ministry value is that we keep the gospel at the center of all we do. We keep it at the center. It's the center of our focus. It's the center of our ministry here because it's at the center of the heart of God. When you keep your eyes on Jesus, keep them there, you'll see the gospel ushers in a fundamentally different way of approaching God and approaching the world. And in this different way, you will find, what he's saying here, strength. Strength to be a faithful witness in the world. Because living from our salvation in Christ and then doing so together as brothers and sisters is what God provides strength for. Look, I'm about to turn our attention off of the cultural moment, which I normally don't spend as much time on as maybe today, and turn it on towards the, towards the personal. We are going to be a gospel-centered church here. That may be new for you if you're newer to our ministry here, but it's core core for us. In fact, all of our, the other four values I'm going to share over the rest of the series flow out of this one. So let me explain what I mean by the gospel giving you a different way to approach God. It, when it comes to approaching God in our world, there are two primary approaches people take. There's the religion approach. The religion approach says, I obey, and therefore, because I obey God, I am accepted by God, right? If I follow the rules of this or that religion, I will earn God's acceptance, God's favor. Life will be good here, and I will get into whatever version of the afterlife that religion espouses. The gospel is an entirely different thing. The gospel approach to God 
says, I am accepted by God, therefore I obey him. Obedience is a response to acceptance instead of a pursuit of it. The difference is everything. These two approaches produce two different types of change. Religion will produce a, you almost call it like an outward behavior change, almost like a mechanical change. Like say you're standing before just like a little sand pile in front of you. How do you make a sand pile grow? The only thing you can do is you got to add more sand, right? That's very different from how you would grow a tree, right? You grow a tree from the roots from within more organically than mechanically, right? The gospel produces inward change, growth from within. Religion will change your life a lot, okay? It'll give you a lot of stuff to do, Bible studies to go to, prayers to pray, ways to behave. But that is behavior change. The gospel motivates you in an entirely different way. It's an inward, organic change, a change of heart motivations. Let me show you the difference, all right? Religious change will only, it'll actually only further our fear and pride. Because we'll feel proud if we meet the standard and we'll feel afraid if we fall short of the standard of what the consequences will be. So let me give you an example. Take racism. Racism arises out of insecurity in the heart, that therefore I need to look down on other people or a race of people in order to kind of secure my own self-image. If you try to change someone by saying to them, hey, racists are bad. If you're a racist, everyone will think badly of you. Don't be a racist. When you do that, you're actually only furthering the problem that started the racism to begin with, that fear and insecurity. Uh, Paul had to confront Peter in the Bible about his racism when he refused to eat with the Gentiles. When Paul confronted him, he didn't say, Peter, what's your problem? You're an apostle. We're all losing respect for you. If you don't straighten up, we're going to talk badly about you for the next 2,000 years. No, that's not what he did. No, he said, Galatians 2.14, you need to think about the gospel. To coerce Peter's behavior by threatening would have only furthered the problem. You got to deal with the insecurity underneath that's causing the racism. So Paul said, Peter, listen, we have been abundantly loved, though we didn't deserve any of it. And we have been brought near to the Father and secured with him forever, though we didn't deserve it. So you can now love others out of that love. Religious change fails to address the root of our sin. It just applies fear and pressure. But the gospel is just a whole different way of change. It's a change that flows out of our security instead of trying to get security. It's 1 John 4.10. We love him because he first loved us. He was the originator of our love. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. It starts with him. Listen, when, when, I, was, uh, when I first became a Christian, I thought to be a good Christian. You know, I was, uh, like, I was 12, 13 years old, thought to be a good Christian. You had to Memorize scripture. So I memorized a, a lot, not all of it, but a lot of it, right? Like I was doing Bible drills. I was winning candy and youth group and all those kind of things because I was crushing it, right? But then I, I learned that in order to be a good Christian, you needed to share Jesus with others. So I tried really hard to share Jesus with a bunch of other people. And then I learned that you had to go on mission trips to be a good Christian. So I went on some mission trips. And then I learned that you had to give to the poor in order to be a good Christian. So I tried to do that as well. And on and on this went, wearing myself out 
um, because I was trying to become a good Christian. How do you get off that train? By understanding that you can add nothing to what Christ has already done for you. So now, as, man, under conviction and I have a desire, I want to do those things now, not because I have to, to maintain my status as a good Christian, but because I want to, in response to Jesus and out of the overflow of his love now residing in me. This is Romans 12.1, Therefore I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is, look what he says, that your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, that's your reasonable act of worship. Paul appeals for radical change on the basis of the mercy God has shown us in the gospel. And when we fix our eyes on it, meditate on it, consider him, offering all of ourselves will seem reasonable. Reasonable. His generosity is what makes us more generous. His relational love makes us more relationally loving towards others. His forgiveness empowers us to forgive. His security forms our self-image. The gospel is that we're at the same time hopeless sinners, but also loved children. Religion will beat you downward, but Christ's work in us calls us upward. Abiding in Jesus' love makes us spiritually fruitful. And my point in all of this is that the gospel is not just the start of the Christian faith. It's not just the ABCs. It's the whole alphabet, <laughs> The gospel is how we grow. It's not the front door to the Christian house. It's the whole house. We're not justified by faith in the gospel and then sanctified by obedience to good Christian principles on marriage, child raising, money management, etc. No, Galatians 3, 1 through 3, we are sanctified, made to live in a holy manner by faith in the gospel as well. The way we grow in Christ is the same way we began in Christ, putting faith in the gospel. Man, the seeds that survived in Jesus' parable are those that drive the gospel seed deep into the soil. Religion tells you go and change. The gospel changes you right on the spot. Right on the spot. It's like um, like a helium balloon. This will be my last illustration for today. I just want you to grab hold of what the difference between the gospel change and religious change When you fill up a balloon with your own breath, the only way to keep it floating high in the air is to smack it around a lot with your hands, right? Love playing this game with my kids. Keep the balloon up, you know, smacking it around. That's how religion keeps you motivated. It hits you and threatens you on a continual basis. You better not fall. But the other way to keep the balloon afloat is to fill it with helium. That'll keep it afloat automatically with no external coercion whatsoever. Depending on gospel change means two primary things. Change not in order to be accepted by God, but by reflecting on his radical love and complete acceptance of us and depending on God's power, not our own, to change us. Immediately after he convicts you of sin or something like that, it's saying, God, I need your resurrection power to work in me. It's my only hope for change. How do you teach yourself to live this way? How do we as a church keep the gospel at the center? It's that Jesus vision. Fix your eyes on Jesus today. You fix your eyes on Jesus, you open up his word and meet with him. 
He will supply more love, more hope, more peace, more security, more power, more strength than you can ever imagine. I believe it. Consider him. John 15, he tells you, abide in him. Make him your home. Speak the gospel and its promises to one another in the family of God. Church, that's who we're going to be. We're going to be a church that keeps the gospel at the center of all we do. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for your great love, your unfading love, your clear, clear love. It's amazing to me how simple and clear such a powerful love is, and I thank you for it. God, I pray that you would give us as a church um, wisdom, courage. As we keep the gospel at the center, will we be able to to fight well against false gospels and things that would seek to, to try and take up the banner of Jesus when, when you and you alone should get the glory. So help us. God, I pray for the individual that's watching this right now, listening to this. In fact, as I pray for you and you're, you're watching this, I know I do this a good bit, but I can't can't help but think you need to respond. I don't want you to step away from here having not responded yourself. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Maybe just pray to him right now. Lord, will you supply? I know that you supply. That's what I hear. You supply the strength for change. So God, don't just help me change. I don't want you to pray that. I want you to pray, God, help me to see Jesus. Help me to see him today. Help me to see him in your word. Help me to believe. I believe. Help my unbelief. God, I want Jesus to be bigger in the eyes of my heart today. Change will come from that. God, we love you. Thank you for the hope of the gospel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.